This is an ABC podcast. Manuia Letaiao. Hello and get the one talk and good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. We'd like to acknowledge that Pacific Beat comes to you from the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. I'm your host, Egu Dubol, and we appreciate your company this morning. Today on the show, Tuvalu are edging closer to a new Prime Minister. And Vanuatu's cost of living, political turmoil, is at its worst in years. And there's a taro shortage in Samoa. More on these stories shortly. Again, I'm Aggie Dubol, and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, we start in Fiji, where Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka has doubled down on the government's support for Israel. Earlier this week, Fiji backed the United States at the International Court of Justice, supporting Israel's right to occupy the Palestinian-occupied territories, including Gaza. Despite condemnation from civil society groups, Mr Rambuka has held his ground, saying Fiji backs Israel rights, uh, Israel's right to protect itself. So joining us this morning for the latest is our reporter there in Fiji, Lide Movono, with that I say, Bula. Bula Vinaka and Yandra to you, Agnes. Yeah, thank you very much for always joining us, uh, Lide. Uh, quite a important uh, topic that we're talking about this morning and probably quite sensitive too, but what is happening at the, um, the Hague and why do Fijians care so much? Look, it is quite sensitive, um, you know, given that quite a large uh, part of our population is, is Christian and, you know, has uh, religious affiliation, spiritual affiliation to Israel. And so what's happening right now is that in the International Court of Justice, um, they're conducting hearings about the legality of Israel's presence in, in Palestine. So over the next week, up to 52 countries and three organizations are going to be making submissions on whether they support or oppose the Israeli occupation of Palestine. Fiji and the USA have indicated um, their intention to endorse Israel's pre- presence in Palestine, and this has taken a lot of Fijians uh, by surprise. It, um, a lot of what's happening right now is because Fijians didn't know this was happening. Um, uh, this was something that had been in the works well before the October 7 um, attacks in in the Middle East, Agnes. Mm. So uh, are you saying that Fijians agree with Sitiveni Rambuka's stance? Well, absolutely not. That's the problem here. And therein lies the main crux of, you know, the protests that are happening. And uh, what happened is that in the 16 years before the People's Coalition government won power, and that is Sitiveni Rambuka's government, Fiji was largely pro-Palestine in, in the way that it operated internationally. So its foreign policy was very much, you know, um, a, a supportive of uh, international rule of law. It was supportive of human rights. And so as a result of that, it's so the Israeli occupation of Palestine as being um, illegal. And so a lot of how the former government operated was in support of that. So many Fijians are, I suppose, in the most simplest way of putting it, quite shocked at the change of foreign policy. And so there's been a lot of comments posted on social media um, accusing the government of turning its back on human rights value. And and remember, this is a government that came into power just over a year ago, um, you know, on a platform of human rights and freedom and liberation. So um, people are not taking too kindly to this. And just last night, um, Agnes, there was even a petition uh, directed at the government. And in a few short hours, it's already attracted close to 2,000 signatures.
Wow, that's a lot of people just overnight. So what do those protesting this change in foreign policy actually want? Look, to put it simply, and this is based on uh, what we're seeing on social media chatter, but also in terms of formal statements from um, the Fiji uh, um, NGO Coalition on Human Rights. So that's, you know, all the civil society who work in the human rights space. And um, Fiji has quite a vibrant and quite a large um, human rights uh, community. And so they're asking the government to explain itself, to explain um, the thought process that arrived at this change of foreign policy. And it's calling on Rombuka to be transparent with that process. Um, you know, they're accusing him of making decisions um, in isolation of what the rest of Fiji want. And so a lot of the voices that's coming out is saying, this is not Fiji. You know, we are people, we are peace-loving people in support of um, those who are um, struggling and those who are being occupied. So they're asking Rombuka to explain himself to the public and they want the government to reconsider its position. Now, those hearings that are taking place at The Hague, Fiji is not due to make its actual submission until the 26th, which is you know early next week. And so um, the human rights activists are saying there's time. There's time for the Fijian government to reconsider its position and to realign its foreign policy with principles of you know human dignity, justice, and respect for international law, values that um, CSO uh, figurehead Shamima Ali, who is the head of the women's movement, here, um, they're saying those are the values that Fiji is synonymous with. And she's reminded the prime minister to show his government's commitment to the human rights and social justice ideals that, you know, they rode in on when they won the 2022 general elections and the, the NGO coalition is saying Fiji is a country that you know advocates for the rights of all people, including especially the Palestinian peoples. But um, to be fair, they're, they're also telling the government, we can help you. We can help you to adopt a foreign policy that better reflects the values of Fiji's people. Mm. And of course, yes, uh, asking the government to explain its stance, has then the prime minister explained his position? He has. And that's one thing about Rombuka. You know, every time we see this sort of upheavals happen, we see public outcry. He responds to it. So it's quite responsive to, you know, widespread condemnation of his initiatives or, or, or of his government's uh, foreign policy. This is not the first time, Agnes. But um, late yesterday afternoon, the prime minister's office issued um, a statement and, and explained that their stance is based on the fact that there are existing legal frameworks, that there are legally Binding laws already in place that they, um, you know, say must be followed, and and they're saying that um, bringing in the ICJ to to um, to provide an advisory opinion is basically asking the ICJ to uh, provide a legal uh, resolution to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, which it says is is undermining. It says it's it's setting a bad precedent because then now all other ongoing conflicts can be brought to the ICJ. In this way, and it's making a mockery of the court's integrity. That's that's what his statement said, Agnes. Mm. I mean, I'd like to know, and I'm sure many of the uh, community there in Fiji would like to know, what kind of implications does this have uh, for your country? 
Well, see, I think first and foremost, uh, the people of Fiji, like very many other countries in the Pacific, want to be always recognized as a peace-loving people. And given that Rombuka has been pushing in the international space, in the original space, that feed, that the Pacific be uh, a zone of peace, you know, where conflicts of this sort is um, looked down upon, not encouraged, and stood up against, uh, people want uh, uh, um, uh, the government's behavior to reflect that. And so what they're saying is that um, uh, this change of foreign policy gives a very bad impression of uh, Fiji to, you know, the wider international global community. And the, the very specific implication of that kind of change of character is to do with how it affects our peacekeepers. And so um, fun fact, Agnes, that a lot of people probably don't know is that Fiji provides uh, one of the largest contingents of peacekeepers um, to very, very many troubled spots around the world. And so since the late 1970s, Fijian soldiers have you know, provided the bulk of um, United Nations peacekeeping missions. And so what some of the foreign policy experts I spoke to um, off the record yesterday said is that this submission and, and the way it's not been transparent, the way it's not been communicated properly puts these Fijian peacekeepers at risk. Um, since the late 70s, Fijian soldiers have this reputation for being, you know, aside from being uh, very good soldiers, they have a reputation for being friendly, for being neutral everywhere they go in the world, and for being peace-loving. And so one of the larger implications of this is that it changes how Fijian looks and that it might attract um, unnecessary and possibly dangerous uh, attention onto uh, Fijians who, who play a peace role um, in in troubled spots around the world. Yeah, I'd quickly have to ask, because as you said, if they are some of the biggest contingencies, uh, you know, sending out um, Fijians to be at the forefront <laughs> in the front line of conflict zones around the world, uh, any other word that you'd like to share with us this morning? Well, I think for, for for Fiji here, it's 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 a change. It's the something different, and 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 the lack of transparency around that is causing um, a lot of the the angst, a lot of the the shock in the community. And it, it doesn't help that they found out. All of us found out about this um, when uh, the lawyer representing uh, the state of Palestine um, revealed it in in the ICJ over the last two to three days. So um, it's something. That that Rumbuka's government probably needs to think about better is when they're making uh, changes to, to policy that, that you know, have been ingrained in our way of life here, they probably need to be communicating better to the people um, to avoid this kind of angst. Um, so far, all we've had is this, is this statement and Rumbuka has not, you know, fronted media or, or spoken to local communities to explain um, the legal basis or, or, or the technical reason for his change of policy, Agnes. Uh, well, you know what, Lee, I know you will always keep us up to date as to what is happening there uh, in your beautiful country of Fiji. So we just uh, say vinaka for joining us this morning. Malo and vinaka valevu. No worries. That is our ABC reporter in Fiji, Lee Movono. Pacific Beat. Now we head to Tuvalu. It's been a long wait to select a new Prime Minister and it could be soon, uh, it could be over soon with a vote expected on Friday. Most of the country's MPs who were elected into office on January 26 are now in the capital, Funafuti, with the remaining set to arrive later today. Sibi Malaki is a senior election official with the Office of the Prime Minister and he spoke with reporter Mackenzie Smith. We, um, 
hoping the election of the Prime Minister will be done sometimes uh, this week because the or most of the elected members of um, from the last election are already here in the capital, except four other members who are currently in the outer islands, especially the elected members from the Nanumi Electoral District and the Nanumang Electoral District. And uh, on Monday, the the boats are. Um, travel to these two islands to pick up these uh, elected members and um, the update from the boats is expected to arrive here in capital um, tomorrow afternoon. And so will this be the last boat to arrive with the MPs? Yes, that's right. Uh, four MPs from the, yeah, the, la- yeah, the, fo- the last four to arrive on the, the- Bad weather is responsible for much of these delays. Can you talk me through exactly what's happened over the past couple of weeks? So after the election um, last month, we experienced a lot of uh, bad weather due to uh, uh, depression that was formed around the the region. And uh, we... We were issued a strong wind warning for all uh, islands in Tuvalu on land and waters, and therefore um, the, the ships cannot travel to to the outer islands to uplift the elected members. However, there was the one of the vessels that went to drop off the ballot boxes and uh, got stuck in the outer islands, and during uh, during the the um, the weather condi- uh, the bad weather it was still uh, stuck in the outer islands but the, there was a window of uh, good weather around that time and then it managed to uplift uh, four elected members from New Tao and uh, Nui electoral district so th- they they were the first to to be transported back to the main island and. Uh, Another uh, week later, then we have the, the another board went to pick up the the other MPs from the other two islands. And now that the weather has has subsided and the the strong wind warning was uh, lifted, and then the the board managed to travel to the rest of the of the islands, especially the two northern islands, to pick up the rest of the MPs. So hopefully they will arrive tomorrow afternoon. And I guess the election of the Prime Minister will um, depend if it's uh, Friday, but the the Governor-General will issue a a letter informing uh, the elected MPs about the date and time, and I don't have that information at the moment. It's a remarkable process. Was there an attempt to undertake the Prime Ministerial vote remotely and what happened with that? According to the information that I have, um, the the Attorney General's office as well as the Office of the Secretary to Government, yeah, they, they work together with the Office of the Governor-General because um, under our uh, Constitution, it was the Governor-General 
who is the representative of the head of state, is responsible for issuing notices to all members of parliament regarding the election meeting for the prime minister. And uh, we gave him uh, options as uh, advice because of the we cannot we cannot hold um, the election of the prime minister. Uh, more or uh, longer than three weeks. So we were looking at um, advising the Governor General under his discretion, under the, the Constitution, that uh, he can um, uh, hold the election through hybrid uh, mode. And uh, the first option is to to have the election of the Prime Minister when all the candidates arrive. But luckily we have the good weather um, this week, so the, the that option of having a hybrid was uh, strapped out and uh, now we have the the usual uh, practice where we had the election of the Prime Minister when all elected MPs are present in the, the capital. And that was Semi Malaki, a senior election official in Tuvalu, speaking with reporter Mackenzie Smith. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Now to New Zealand, we're a champion for fairness and equality. Pacifica Green Party MP Fa'anana Efeso Collins has died after a charity event in New Zealand's largest city, Auckland, yesterday. He was 49. The father of two and former Auckland mayoral candidate was raising money to bring safe drinking water to children in the Pacific region before he suffered a medical incident. Dubravka Volodier reports. Fa'anana Efeso Collins has been described as a pillar of New Zealand's Pacifica community. Community member Dave Letele was talking to him only minutes before his passing at the charity event they attended together. The event had finished and, um, you know, we're literally seconds earlier having a laugh together and... um, and then he, you know, we turned around and he and he'd collapsed. Mr. Letele describes him as selfless and forever positive. He, he's a, he's an inspiration for for our people, and um, you know, and the, the sad thing for me is that he was only just beginning, really, in terms of the impact that he could have had. You know, being now in Parliament, and he was he's always fighting um, for issues that were affecting our people. His death comes just a week after his maiden speech at New Zealand's Parliament, where he spoke about his upbringing. Malo mahakahetai. Faimai ina watia e a kupo ilemea samoyai. Born in the Auckland suburb of Otara, he was the youngest of six children. He was elected as Greens MP in last October's election after being a member of the Labour Party for many years. He was also a youth worker and an Auckland councillor. Former New Zealand Minister of Pacific Peoples, Aupito William Sio, says he was an inspiration. He was certainly fearless, I would uh, describe him, and I say that because when he first was sworn in as a council, he immediately started raising racism and confronted that behaviour on the night he was being sworn in, and he's consistently confronted racism and discrimination since. He became a, a champion for the next 
crop of Pacific leaders that were emerging out of universities in the public sector and in the community. And then I think his maiden speech last week in the House, that was quite inspirational. And I came away thinking he was providing good, inspirational leadership to the next group of Pacific peoples of Aotearoa and gave people so much hope. 21-year-old Elia Tiatia's family was friends with Efeso Collins and he's known him for many years. A law student and youth leader in South Auckland, he says he meant a lot to his generation, but especially to him as a person. Efeso, so, uh, him and my dad in particular, are real, are real close through that. I was able to meet Efeso. He was someone who always pushed me to believe in my dreams. He'd always be the front runner to believe in my dreams as well. I've always admired Efeso as, you know, like to me, he was a mentor. Uh, to me, he was a leader. And he was, uh, he, he was a close family friend to our family. Leaders from across the political spectrum have expressed shock at his sudden death. It brought New Zealand's parliament to a standstill. Green Party co-leader James Shaw says his death is a huge loss. We are absolutely devastated. A beautiful family has lost a dedicated father, a husband and a community leader. Aotearoa and the Green Party have lost one of the kindest and most dedicated champions of fairness. He is survived by his two children and his wife, Fia. And that's Dubravka Volodya reporting. Only recently he took part in a panel on Pacific Beat, advocating for his people, uh, his community and the lead up to the New Zealand elections. He was not just a political figure, but a man of service, someone who fiercely loved his wife, Fia, and his children, Capriela and Asalemo. He was a friend who, in just eight days, he would have been here to catch up. We joked about always giving each other the weather report, and now I guess that won't happen. But you did well, my friend. Farewell, your legacy we carry on. Ia manuia lau malanga, alofaanga, ili mahavai mo'oi le tuangane pele. Now, the rising cost of living is hitting most Pacific nations, but in Vanuatu, it's the worst it has ever been. It comes amid further political turmoil, with yet another no-confidence motion lodged against Prime Minister Shalo Salwai. The ABC's reporter in Port Vila, Essen Jack, hit the streets to find out how rising prices and the political turmoil are impacting the lives of the Nivans. At Port Phyllis Central Market, there's been a constant talking point over the past 12 months. And more recently, the point is getting louder. Uh, for me, me being like one tin fish where... Prices are rising practically every day. My favourite tin fish used to cost 190 vatu, but I now pay 220 vatu for it the next day. For Dalsi Temakon, a anti-crafts market fender, the increases in basic goods is hard to ignore. She says she wants action. Me really want them looking say price control I want the price control unit to implement measures to ensure that everyone is treated fairly. It's the same for Stephen Mile, a local builder. You know or something Because Vanuatu produces few goods, the global war is the cause of this inflation. The government must assist farmers in increasing the output and promote regional companies. 
One of the causes of inflation is out of the control of the local government. The impacts of overseas wars in Ukraine and Gaza as it most economies. But other causes are Omicron. The impact of three major cyclones that ripped through the country last year is still causing major issues with food supply. And government support for the recovery from the cyclone is still yet to fully trickle out to the affected communities. According to John Salong, Fonatu's Minister of Finance, it means inflation isn't going anywhere. Well, impact by inflation. The impact of inflation will persist in the region as a result of global geopolitical tensions and war. But Fonatu's opposition party, led by former Prime Minister Ismail Kalsakau, is questioning why. He says the government needs to do more. Reserve Bank, you know, move quicker. When it looks like we finished some little signs. Despite seeing certain indications of inflation already, the Reserve Bank has not provided an explanation for why they did not move more quickly to combat it. It is also their responsibility to observe and respond. It comes as the Fonadu's government, led by Charles Salway, faces yet another motion of no confidence. The motion, lodged by Mr. Kalsakau and supported by eight other MPs, will be debated today. Although the APC understands it is currently not a major threat to Mr. Salway's leadership, it allies the continued uncertainty in Fonadu's politics. Back at the market in Port Vila, locals are tired of political infighting. Instead, they want the government to focus more on what matters, the cost of living. Goods prices are rising steadily and will continue to do so. As I usually say, due to the excessive rate of inflation, government must make sure worker pay must be able to meet the cost of living. And that was a Port Villa resident ending that report from Essencheck. Now, the Papua New Guinea government has come under heated criticism for delaying uh, in acting on a 2019 referendum that saw more than 97% of Bougainvillians vote for independence. That matter was the subject of a fiery exchange in Port Moresby with North Bougainville MP Francesca Semoso, who was questioning whether the referendum results would be ratified this year. But Bougainville Affairs Minister Manasse Makiba says a range of issues would have to be settled before the results could could make its way to Parliament. Back in Booker, Provincial MP Theonila Mutbob has slammed the PNG government for delaying the independence process. Now can I know that my government loves me, my government represents me, my government legislates for me. The 97.7% is a writing on the wall in everyone's arts in Bougainville. But the thing is, If we have a government that's not responsible, is not listening to us, knowing well that, and if you can't say that you still haven't gotten your approval to talk about this, who do you represent? And is better off out of the ministry. They will have to be very careful, not because there's going to be conflict. Bougainville will not fight. Bougainville will not go back and fight only because we created a clean slate, no building Bougainville into an independent nation. We've cleared the space, even in business, everything. And we are not ready to fight our own creation, our own business environment, all of these things. But what we need to be careful about is the fact that 
I mean, it's more, for me, it's more the part where moral responsibility comes in. And I would not, you know, as a Papua New Guinean, I would not want to be be a citizen of a country that sees and goes back and run back to the people to buy their power. And once they get their power, they are gone, saving another person. And that is Bougainville Provincial MP Theonila Mudbob. Hey, stay tuned because up next it is your news wrap with producer Mackenzie Smith. Want to immerse yourself in sport and stories of athletes from across the Pacific? Well, join me, Bobby McCumber, alongside some of the most talented journalists and sports commentators from across the region for Fresh Off the Field. Each week, we'll bring you interviews with Pacific athletes leaving their mark on the international stage and those aspiring to do the same. From cricket to netball, athletics to rugby and everything in between. Fresh Off the Field, Thursday afternoon at 4 PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. I'm Aggie Dubois, your host. And uh, we've got our news wrap-up right now, brought to you by our producer, Mackenzie Smith. With that, I say good morning, Mackenzie. Good morning, Aggie. Yeah, thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, interesting one that we start off here. The UN Human Rights Office has called for PNG to take action against tribal violence. What have they said? Yeah, so this comes in response to the killings of around 50 people in Inga province after deadly tribal fighting escalated into a massacre on Sunday. The UN Human Rights Office spokesperson Jeremy Lawrence has issued a a statement urging the PNG government to engage with local and provincial leaders to address the crisis. He's also pointed to the proliferation of guns and ammunition in the Highlands region, and he wants the government to ensure the surrender of these arms. Uh, Lawrence says Highland communities, particularly women and girls, must be protected by the government. Yeah, meanwhile, uh, Australia is funding an additional 20 policemen to be sent to PNG, is that right? Yeah, these uh, the, these officers are expected to arrive in the in the coming weeks. They're due to be there in the first quarter of this year. It's part of the bilateral security agreement signed between Australia and PNG in December. Uh, the Post Courier reports PNG's police commissioner David Manning saying the group will support PNG police and they will wear PNG police uniforms while they're there. Um, and and they're going to be coming from a, a range of Commonwealth uh, countries. Following Sunday's violence, the Prime Minister of PNG, James Marape, has said the government is unlikely to ask Australia for direct policing assistance to help in the Highlands. Okay, and then we head to Fiji, though. The Minister of Home Affairs has accused the previous administration uh, of letting drug networks go undisputed or undisrupted. Sorry. Yeah, this comes after several large uh, drug busts in Fiji recently, including 12 kilograms of cocaine found packed with kava on Sunday. And that was just days after more than three tonnes of methamphetamine was found in one of Fiji's largest ever drug halls. Fiji Village reports the Minister for Home Affairs, Pio Tiko Duandua, is denying Fiji has a growing pro, pro, dr, 
sorry, as denying Fiji has a growing drug problem. Instead, he's saying that the cases reflect previously undetected illegal drug operations that his government is now taking seriously. He says the government is also working with religious bodies, community leaders and other stakeholders in its fight against drug trafficking. Mm, Sounds like a never-ending issue, though, there in the Pacific, isn't it? Uh, But Mackenzie, thank you so much for bringing our news wrap this morning. No worries. Disasters are inevitable, but losing your life or home isn't. Learn what to do before, during and after disaster in a program aimed at helping you keep safe. Pacific Prepared is all things disaster preparedness for the Pacific, with a team of reporters on the ground having conversations and bringing you the stories that could help you, your family and community prepare for natural disasters. Pacific Prepared, Fridays from 9am PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Yes, appreciate your company this morning. I'm your host, Aggie Dubol, here on Pacific Beat. Remember, anytime you want to make comment, you can head to our Facebook page, ABC Pacific, uh, and share your thoughts there. We welcome them. Well, let's head to uh, this story here. I found this very interesting. After a long and difficult battle with mental illness, uh, there's been this Australian veteran that has found peace in the place he least expected. Uh, As Australia's Royal Commission into Veteran Suicide prepares for its final hearing next month, the former soldier wants others like him to find healing. Marion Farr reports. Michael Jeffrey's deployments to Timor-Leste left him with lasting scars. I was hurting inside. I didn't tell anyone. I kept it all to myself. I didn't see a way forward. As a soldier in the Australian Army, he was sent there three times on peacekeeping missions in the early 2000s. Back then, Timor-Leste was recovering from a brutal Indonesian occupation that saw tens of thousands of people killed. Although the country had finally gained independence, it was crippled by poverty. The effects were devastating. Seeing children asking for for water, aqua, you know, aqua mister, like all of us Australian soldiers witnessed this. But for me, that, that really stayed with me. After leaving the army in 2008, the former soldier's mental health took a turn. I I was diagnosed through a um, a psychiatrist that I have PTSD, anxiety and uh, major depressive disorder. Michael Jeffrey's marriage broke down, he lost his house and it felt like everything was falling apart. I didn't think I'd be happy again. I, I honestly didn't. Everything changed when he decided to go back to Timor-Leste in 2022. My first deployment to this country was what affected me the most, that I would come back here to find my happiness and, and to feel inner peace. I, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't expect that at all. The trip was run by an organisation called Timor Awakening, an Australian NGO that supports veterans after they leave the military. Michael Stone is the program's director. We've been going for over seven years now, uh, taking over 500 veterans on programs. Participants help build schools, visit historic sites and connect with Timorese locals who fought for their country's independence. The Timorese veterans uh, themselves went through 24 years of incredible trauma and suffering and they're role models to us in resilience. These these people have, have lived through terrible, terrible times and are still moving forward, still wanting peace. 
When Michael Jeffries returned to Australia, he struck up a friendship with a Timorese woman on Facebook. Soon, he was back on a plane. And I said to Bella, I'm, I'm coming back. I'm, I'm, I flew over on my own. I came straight back and we uh, met at the airport with all the family. Herself a survivor of the occupation, Bella Mosquita always admired the Australian troops who served there. For us kids, that time you are our hero, like you save us. The pair are now married and starting a new life together in her remote village. Now, life is amazing. Life is positive. I'm, I'm extremely happy and um, I'm at peace. I have inner peace. While he's found healing, others like him are still doing it tough. In March, Australia's Royal Commission into Veteran Suicide will begin its final public hearing in Sydney. Michael Jeffries wants programs like Timor Awakening to be available to all Australian veterans. I honestly believe that this program, the Timor Awakening program, should be a part of the transition from service into civilian life. And that is Australian veteran Michael Jeffries ending that report by Marion Farr. Taro is a staple food in many Pacific households, but in Samoa, it's in short supply. The shortage has seen the price of the vegetables soar in some places, and health experts fear an increased reliance on white rice could have poor health outcomes. Carl Evans has more. In the bustling streets of Apia, the root vegetable taro is a hot commodity. But in recent times, local trader Tavita Tumanivao says the popular food has been in short supply. It started in October last year, from there until now. There's still enough supply of taro in the country though, especially in the market. But there are times when you see there's no taro at the market because there's been lots of buyers. There's also an abundance of breadfruit and it seems that some are making the most of the breadfruit instead of using taro. The shortage has seen the price of taro in Samoa triple. And Kawini Mary Finau from the Pacific Horticultural Agricultural Market Access Plus program says volume of overseas exports of taro have plummeted also. I think up to 2021, exports was doing okay. Uh, it was recovering from COVID. And then we just saw a big decline in 2022 and 2023. So we're seeing a, a little bit of recovery now. But 2022 and 2023, the export volumes were just really low. Um, and that's because of, there was a dire shortage of taro in country. And so the price went up here in the local market. And so all the farmers that had taro were just selling in the local market. And there was just very little going to exports. Kawini says a lack of planting material, known as teopula, is to blame for the shortage. There's other factors too, such as a nationwide labour shortage brought about by seasonal work programs and feral pigs. Before the, a lot of the people left for RSE schemes, there were a lot of people working the land and planting. Mm. Um, now with um, less people farming in the bush or where the plantations are, the pigs are coming more towards where the homes are. And the younger men leaving and the plantations not being attended to, yeah, the pigs are just coming in and just helping themselves to what was grown. But help is on the way. Miss Finau's firm has teamed up with the Samoan government to address the shortage by delivering half a million tiapula to 100 commercial growers. 
She hopes it will restore Samoa's export numbers, which had dropped from 4,000 tonnes to only 500 in 2022. 500,000 tiapula, if you take only 10% loss, that equates to about 450,000 taro corbs. And that's a lot that can supply both the local market and specifically support exports, which has reduced over the over the months. But tiapula is regenerative in nature. So when you plant one tiapula, it produces two or three more planting materials. So giving them this 500,000 will results in three times more tiapula for them to sell in the, to the export market. The initiative is in the planning phase. However, help can't come soon enough. The decrease of taro has seen reliance on white rice increase, both in Samoa and among the diaspora. Tongan nutritionist Mafi Funaki Taiforte says that's bad news. Well, when you look at the high incidence of diabetes, so my concern as a dietitian is they're moving to rice and we're talking here white rice, then it will worsen blood sugar levels uh, for those with diabetes. And diabetes is a lot of our communities, specific communities and someone are impacted. And that's Tongan nutritionist Mafifu Naki Tahifote ending that report by Carl Evans. Pacific Beat. Now, Sydney World Pride started last weekend and members of the Pacifica queer community will also take part. The event runs for two weeks and will culminate in a colourful parade in early March. Among the Pacific faces at the Mardi Gras is 42-year-old Fijian Jason Barat. Jason moved to Sydney on a LGBT plus protection visa four years ago and will take part in Pride celebrations for the first time as part of the group Starts Blacktown in Western Sydney. He told Dubravka Volodya how meaningful this is for him. Back home we used to... Me and my friends, my circle, like gay friends, we used to look at it and then think, uh, like, you know, so wish that we could be part of it. But, uh, yeah, so that's uh, another reason. But the main reason, like, for me, uh, partaking in this uh, Mardi Gras, and I'm very fortunate that I, I will be part of it. I just feel like I I had to involve myself more in the LGBTQ QI community because like uh, from my background from home uh, Fiji like I was um, very reserved that's why for me it's very important for me to take part in this uh, Mardi Gras because I feel like it's a platform like where you can express yourself be yourself or like be the person that you want to be so yeah it's very uh, important to me that I I be part of this this year thank you and it's also my first year though You came to Australia in 2019 I believe on a, a protection visa was there a particular experience that prompted you to leave your home your friends your family to come here and start a new life I grew up with uh, like verbal abuse uh, physical abuse and uh, sexual abuse uh, so, um, like, because of the stigma and um, religion and then half and So, you know, most of the things were taboo. And then, like, um, I didn't have anyone to confide in. And But uh, for me, what prompted me and what my turning point was, like, when I was older, I was, I, I was working and then me and my friend were on our way back home and then we were mobbed and... Um, 
physically abused. That was like a turning point for me because I was like, you know, I'm, I lived with uh, fear and anxiety the whole uh, the time because these were just uh, uh, guys from our neighborhood. I used to have that fear, like, you know, um, even going to work in the, in the daylight. And it was worse um, when I was uh, coming off work uh, during midnight, which is when my shift would end. Um, I would like feel I'm just like no, I'm not gonna walk home. And then I would, I could like just stall or stall at my workplace for an hour or so, just to know that like if someone comes past. So after traveling as a tourist for the past the, the three years, like to 2016, I think to 2019. Yes, and I would uh, hang out with my friends too, some of my friends that were already settled here in Australia, uh, gay men. And uh, yeah, I'm just being about with them and the experiences and meeting other LGBTI community um, organizations that they took me to around uh, here, uh, the Tongans, the um, Samoans. So yeah, I really felt like, you know, that I, I wanted to be part of that. I, I didn't want to you know, I was like, oh, there was no point going back to Fiji. There was nothing there for me. So, yeah, that was my turning point and that what prompted me to actually come to Australia and settle in Australia. Jason, thank you for sharing. You were talking about the abuse that you faced and the stigma. Do you have a feeling that this is happening to some extent within the Pacifica community here as well? Or is there a lot more acceptance here? I haven't really experienced it uh, here, but uh, I know of people that, uh, my well, I wouldn't say people, I would say like, you know, the gay community, like my friends or a friend of a friend here that's gay, like we're back from Fiji together. And yeah. I would say that I um, haven't really experienced it for myself. Like, this is my point of view. But, yeah, I would say it would have fallen, like, a little bit. Maybe, yeah, a few percentage of it. Like, uh, yeah, but it's not as worse as back home. What's your message to our listeners who are listening from from the Pacific region? Is there a message you would like to share? And I'm, I also forgot to mention earlier that I was actually doing this, trying to be part of the Mardi Gras thing. You know, not only like uh, because I know it's 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 going to help me and it's helped me like being part of this. And because I know I can also take back and help other uh, Pacific Islander LGBTQI uh, communities. So my advice would be like, you know, to... For other LGBTQ uh, community members out there in the Pacific and all, you know, it's it's always good to talk and seek help. I know it's uh, easier said than done, but um, somewhere out there, you know, if you really look hard, opportunities will open and then, you know, you'll just grab it and, um, you know, make a better life for yourself. And that's Jason Barat talking to Dubravka Volodier. Let's take a look back at our main story today. Fiji back in the United States at the International Court of Justice supporting Israel's right to occupy the Palestinian-occupied territories, including Gaza, prompting a local backlash. According to our Fiji reporter, Lide Movono. 
and this has taken a lot of Fijians uh, by surprise. It, um, a lot of what's happening right now is because Fijians didn't know this was happening. Um, uh, this was something that had been in the works well before the October 7 um, attacks. Remember, you can hear us this afternoon at 5pm PNG time, but tomorrow it'll be your sports edition with Richard Hewitt at 6am PNG time. Uh, I'll see you next Monday, but until then, I'm Aggie Dubol, and you've been listening into Pacific Beat.